Hey, podcast family, Jason Miller here. Over the past couple of years, this podcast has made its way into the lives of a growing digital community that covers all 50 states and places beyond the U.S. And here in South Bend, we are humbled knowing that you take the time to listen. It's December, and we wanted to let you know that you can support the podcast with year-end giving by going to southbendcitychurch.com slash give. If you do that, you'll see a menu that lets you select general Christmas 2019 or podcast. And if you select podcast, that'll just help us have some context for your support. Regardless, this Advent season, know that it's our privilege to serve you with this podcast, that we're cheering for you, and that we count you as part of the family. Grace and peace, friends.
Good morning. Every once in a while in our gatherings, there's that moment when Zach takes the mic off the stand. And you know that like fluttery feeling you have in your heart, like something good's about to happen? That hopefulness you feel? That's a good metaphor for Advent. Well, hopefulness bubbling up inside. Uh, hey, I'm Jason. Welcome to South and City Church. Uh, we are honored that you are here, and we really mean that. Uh, one of our baseline convictions as a community is that your life is a sacred gift to the world and to us. So thank you for being here. Uh, we hope that you have some sense of that yourself. And if you don't, maybe we can like, speak that into you, because we really believe that about you. So thanks for being here. If we could go back in time to uh, very early in the movement that we call the church, Uh, We would land ourselves somewhere maybe in the fourth or fifth decade uh, AD, uh, just a few years after Jesus had lived his life, and this movement was beginning to spread through the ancient world. If we could do that, uh, we might notice some things. By the way, the reason we might want to do that is we might be curious about how it is that a completely um, socially neglected uh, band of seemingly unimportant people ended up giving their lives to a movement that really changed the world I mean, dramatically. Like, we might be curious about what kind of vitality was present in those communities and how did they lay hold of it? Because again, they, they didn't have political power, they didn't have status, they didn't have years or centuries of people knowing what this movement meant. They had this encounter with, with God in Christ that did something to set them on fire and caused them to live lives that changed the world. Like, we might wanna go and see what that was like. If we did that, I think a lot of things would stand out. We might find ourselves in a, in a gathering of maybe a few dozen people in a, in a home somewhere in, in a city in the ancient world, and we would walk in and be a fly on the wall in this gathering of these followers of Jesus, and we might observe, first of all, uh, their kind of rampant, uh, unexpected belonging that was happening there. And by belonging, I mean different kinds of people all belonging not just to God, but to one another and finding belonging with each other. It might stand out to us that in a highly stratified and divided society where roles were very strictly defined around everything from economic status to race to gender, like that in that gathering, we would have discovered really radical belonging among one another, crossing all sorts of lines like that. And that that belonging made the way for uh, a really radical equality of leadership for people too. We might be surprised that in those sort of enlivened moments of the early church that you could find a woman leading a church or a man leading a church. You might find a slave having a voice in a gathering where his master sits. There would be this really impressive, exciting thing going on there, right? Uh, We might be struck by how brave these people were because they would have to be brave uh, for the ways that they were opting out of and saying no to a lot of things that were expected of people at that time in the world whether it was opting out of the the emperor cult and recognizing that saying Jesus is Lord means that Caesar is not, and calling them to a radical relationship with the political realities around them, or the way that they were opting out of just sort of everyday destructive ways of living and being in the world. We might have been struck by the bravery and conviction that it took for them to do that. We could go on and on, but one of the other things that would have stood out to you, I think, if, if you and I like went back and just visited one of these early sort of Jesus communities is we perhaps see them uh, share a meal, a, a sacred meal, and that would make sense, but then we would see them turning to the scriptures and we would think, this is the part where we're gonna hear the gospel read, right? Except they didn't have the gospel in that form. 
They wouldn't have had Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Those texts come a couple decades later and, and on in the life of the church. They might have perhaps had a letter from a guy named Paul who uh, maybe in a couple of paragraphs in 1 Corinthians 15 distilled the, the heartbeat of gospel, but largely what they had were the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And one of the places it's clear that they turned to to actually hear the gospel, like the good news, to reflect on and understand their experience of Jesus, one of the places they turned was the prophet Isaiah. I think I said this last week, but Isaiah has been called uh, the apostle and the evangelist uh, of the gospel, even though he's writing and speaking centuries before the time of Jesus. And so uh, the church around the world in this season called Advent, one of the things that we often do is we turn back to those same texts to maybe hear again how it is that they anticipate Jesus or how they illuminate our experience of God coming into the world through Christ. And so that's what we've been doing. We did it last week and we're going to do a bit more today. So today, like the whole plan at this point is really just to offer a bit of a meditation on the Isaiah text and see if it says anything else to us uh, today. You guys up for it? Yeah? Cool. All right. Awesome. Let's, let's jump right in uh, to the opening of Isaiah 11. It's a little bit peculiar. Uh, it goes like this. On this humbled ground, a tiny shoot, hopeful and promising, will sprout from Jesse's stump. Let's just hang there. This is one of those awkward moments in Scripture where if you don't have context, it's kind of uncomfortable or confusing. Like, what on earth is going on with Jesse? Like, why has the ground been humbled, right? There's actually something really powerful about this passage uh, coming out of the gate with these words. For the Hebrew people, for the Israelites, one of the most profound experiences of safety and belonging with God, one of the profound experiences of knowing that God was with them and for them, was the experience that they had mediated through a king named David. And of course, if, if you live in the ancient world, like if you want to be taken care of, if you want to know that things are going to be okay for you and your people, you've probably got to hope for a good king. Because it's the job of a good king to make sure that the tribe that you're a part of, the community that you're a part of is administered with equity and justice. It's part of the job of a good king to make sure that resources are being stewarded well for times of lean or famine. It's part of the job of a good king to protect his kingdom from other kingdoms, to lead the fight when threats come against their people. And so if you have a good king, a strong king, a smart king, a wise king, a fair king, a godly king, things are hopefully going to go okay for you and your people. And that's a memory that's hard harkens back to in the experience of David that they had, right? And the reason Jesse is named here is that Jesse is David's dad. So you have a people who have a memory of a time when through a good king, God took good care of them. And that's not the experience that they're having right now. So there's a sort of backward-looking longing of the way things were that's being translated here into a forward-looking hope. But the text starts at the place of devastation where they lost that experience of a king. This hopeful, promising, forward-looking text starts in the place of devastation, looking backward to the place where they lost everything they had. It says humbled ground. Not humble ground, humbled, right? All of us want to be humble. Nobody wants to be humbled, right? <laughs> to be humbled is to probably go through like a really difficult or painful or humiliating experience, sometimes in the sight of your peers or your neighbors. And this is talking about that humbled place where their hopes were devastated and, and the, the line was sort of cut off, right? So before we go any further, let's just observe that like prophetic hope often goes to the place of greatest devastation. And says so you're not gonna find your hope by ignoring those places or by turning away from those places, but hope is actually lurking there where things have been cut off. But that's perhaps the place to look for something new shooting up that God might wanna do. 
text goes on and it describes a person with big and exciting language. A branch will emerge, this would be a person in the line of David, right? From his roots to bear fruit. And on this child from David's line, the spirit of the eternal one will alight and rest. By the spirit of wisdom and discernment, he will shine like the dew. By the spirit of counsel and strength, he will judge fairly and act courageously. By the spirit of knowledge and reverence of the eternal one, he will take pleasure in honoring the eternal. He will determine fairness and equity. He will consider more than what meets the eye and weigh more than what he's told. Well, it's clear that very early the followers of Jesus began to see this as a naming their experience of the life of God in him, right? Now, I don't know about you, but when you read this description, uh, can I go back one slide there, Ryan? Let me just grab these words again. We have uh, wisdom and discernment and counsel and strength, fairness and courage, and then the next slide, knowledge, reverence for God, taking pleasure in honoring the eternal, fairness, equity. He sees to the truth of things and not just the appearance of things. As I was reading it this week, I had like a strange feeling. The first feeling I had was the way that this interacts with this other thing I keep experiencing lately. And the other thing I keep experiencing lately, and maybe you've been experiencing it too, is I don't like us a lot right now. And by us, I mean humans. And the reason I don't is I feel like we are having a hard time being human together right now. There's just so many behaviors and patterns and things that I keep seeing, and they're not just out there, they're in my life too, but they're especially in the news and in the world at large, and there's just this heavy, frustrated feeling that we are not doing very well right now. Yeah, you feel that? Like, you feel this, and I just think, like, when I read about knowledge and reverence, about a capacity of a person that sees to the truth of things and not just the appearances of things, when I read about equity and fairness and integrity, like, like I kind of look at, like, it would be really nice to be around that. It feels like there is a, a dearth of that, like a lack of some of that in the world right now. And I don't know about your experience of Jesus, but it's very clear that one of the reasons that the early followers of Jesus attached this text to him was it described their experience of him. And I don't know about what you're experiencing right now, but I like, have this, this longing for that character, for that, for that life of God uh, in the world and in, in my life. It seems like a pretty stark contrast to some of the other things that we see right now, right? I raise this too because uh, I find myself often in conversations with friends and other people who really want to push me on the Jesus thing. Like, why Jesus? Or really Jesus? Or like... Like, you know, like, they really want to push me on that. And sometimes they want to, you know, understand where my beliefs come from or why I believe the things I believe or how they add up in my head, right? And those are good conversations to have sometimes. But sometimes I think what gets underrated or missed and some of that working it out is um, the opportunity for just a genuine affection for the character demonstrated in the life of Jesus that sort of magnetism that comes as much from, from the heart as it does from the mind for, for, the, for the life that he lived and for who he is. I, I think that can be underrated sometimes in all these conversations about where truth lies. And I think about uh, the many who found themselves compelled and drawn toward that character. I think about uh, stories of religious leaders who went under the cover of night to talk to him. They had a lot of status at risk, a lot of power at risk by affiliating with this renegade movement that was happening, and so they go under cover of night, but you can see they're compelled, they, they see something there. I think about um, people who had no status, who were on the outside looking in on just about everything in society, but who found their way to him. I think about 
the women who had been used and abused, who found their way to him, who sensed that they could trust him. I think about uh, the way that he welcomed children uh, in his presence. I think about uh, the Romans, who were actively executing an occupation of the territory of Jesus' people, and yet who sensed something reliable and good enough in him that they reached out and invited him to heal their friends. I think about that magnetism and attraction, and I think it can be underrated sometimes, but Advent is a good season for giving yourself permission to see if there's anything you find compelling or beautiful or desirable or, or good in, in, in the sheer sort of force of his character. And whether it's the way that Isaiah speaks or the way that the Gospels speak, uh, Advent's a good time for, for meditating on that. Now, as you might expect, um, oh, sorry, one more note on that. Uh, I also, upon reflecting on that, was thinking about a conversation I heard on a podcast that I was so moved by. It was a conversation between uh, Ezra Klein and David Brooks. If you don't know these names, Ezra Klein is a younger uh, journalist and entrepreneur. He created Vox Media, Vox.com, big sort of journalistic and publishing empire now. And then David Brooks is a conservative commentator and writer. He writes books and he writes for the New York Times. And uh, they're two very smart people um, having a conversation in public on a podcast, and I get really excited about that, so I was listening. And, uh, and Brooks is interesting because he's a public intellectual who has really gone through a sort of public conversion of faith uh, in an interesting way, and he's been willing to reflect on that publicly. And so Ezra Klein is asking him about that, and it's a sort of unexpected conversation around Jesus in the middle of like a two-hour conversation about everything else that David Brooks and Ezra Klein talk about. But Klein asks, like, like, like why Jesus? Like, what, what is it about that? And the way that Brooks spoke to me it was less about arguments about who's right and who's wrong, and it was what he found compelling. And he said it like this in the podcast. He said the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, how somebody in that time came up with this radical revolutionary concept. And this phrase just knocks me out. He said, the celestial grandeur shines through in those statements. I can't unread Matthew. I can't unread the Sermon on the Mount. And I feel that if there is a God, that somehow his essence is somehow captured in what Jesus said there. Because I, I'll say at least for me, there is something um, magnetic and compelling about the character and the life that w was lived there, the, um, the clarity with which he seems to have been listening to the frequency of the Father in a way that allowed him to march to the beat of a very different drummer than the beat that many of us are walking to today. And I just um, find that worth calling out. Now Isaiah goes on, of course, and Isaiah goes on to paint a picture of what has come to be called the peaceable kingdom. That's the strange part with all the animals and stuff. Let's look at this again, right? Isaiah says, a day will come when the wolf will live peacefully beside the wobbly kneed lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the yearling, newborn and slow, will rest secure with the lion and a little child will tend them all. Bears will graze with the cows they used to attack. Even their young will rest together and the lion will eat hay like gentle oxen. Neither will a baby who plays next to a cobra's hole nor a toddler who sticks his hand into a nest of vipers suffer harm. All my holy mountain will be free of anything hurtful or destructive for as the waters fill the sea, the entire earth will be filled with the knowledge of the eternal. Then on that day, the, that root from Jesse's line will stand as a signal for the peoples of the world who will come to him seeking guidance and direction and glory will be restored to the land where he resides. 
This is you know, clearly a picture of uh, vulnerable lives coexisting alongside the predators that have made them unsafe, but no longer being unsafe. Right? You get that whether it's a lamb or a child, you have these pictures of vulnerable lives coexisting right alongside and perhaps even in relationship with other lives that have made them unsafe, but they are no longer unsafe. That's a pretty powerful image of restoration. I also get that it's a bit of a strange image. It's kind of strange poetry, the, these images that Isaiah uses. And so um, rather than just dwelling in text and image that comes from 2,500 years ago, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit to something about 200 years ago uh, to an artist who was fixated uh, with this particular image from Isaiah and see if it helps us think a little more about what this might mean for us today. The artist is Edward Hicks. And Hicks lived in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Hicks uh, was an American Quaker, uh, a minister, and he was also a painter. And Hicks painted uh, different versions of this scene from Isaiah at least 62 times. That's something like an obsession, right? <laughs> Especially when you think about cost of materials and time and effort for, the, for, for when and where he was living. 62 times he attempted different renditions of this image from Isaiah. Let me show you an example. This is one of the paintings from Hicks. Um, now, I don't know if this is your style. Like, I don't know if you're like, going to go home and buy a print and hang it on the wall. Uh, but, by the way, if you need something a little more contemporary, uh, Marcus on our team sent me this alternative. <laughs> I think this is called The Peaceable Kingdom with Two Olives. Uh, I digress. Back, back to the original. This is an example of Hicks working this out. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Hicks' paintings is he has this sort of mythic rendering of the animals and the babies and all that coexisting, right? But alongside it, there's something else going on. I don't know if you can see this, but on the left-hand side, let's zoom in a little bit. See there on the left, there's something else that he painted into his paintings. And what he painted in here, uh, you might notice there are what look sort of like maybe a stereotypical rendering of First Nations or Native American people there on the left. And then right next to them, you see uh, white men in European colonial garb standing there with them, right? Well, what he has actually rendered here is the signing of the Perpetual Friendship Treaty between William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, where he was living, and the First Nations peoples that were part of that land. So Penn offered this treaty of perpetual friendship to those uh, brothers and sisters who were on the same land, and while Penn honored the treaty, his successors did not. And of course, most of us are enough students of history to know of the flagrant and violent sorts of abuses that were committed against First Nations peoples in the United States by European settlers. So, so we have this mythic sort of rendering of the animals, and it's kind of weird and poetic. But breaking into the image is an actual scene of something that he had had hoped for, that we would be good neighbors, that we would honor our commitments to one another. And he lived long enough to begin to see how some of those promises were broken and how some of those made vulnerable by violence were suffering. So you have this mythic image of the vulnerable next to those who have made them unsafe, no longer being unsafe. And then you have this interesting sort of interjection of a moment in time when, at least for a moment, it appears we were trying to live by our better angels before those promises were broken, right? Uh, Hicks also seems to have been working out a more personal sense of division in the world. Hicks was a Quaker, like I mentioned, and from what we can tell, he, he took his belonging and his faith community really seriously. It was a beloved community for him. And yet, during his lifetime, there was a schism in the Quaker movement. And the schism has two factions at the time that he's living. And one of the factions, they're actually called the Hicksites. 
because his cousin, who's also a Hicks, is the one leading the fractious movement of division. There was a dispute in the church and they broke away from one another. And it appears that another reason he kept being obsessed with this image of, of harmony and peace is that that division was breaking his heart. And so he was working out his longing through the paintings. But by the way, art critics have noticed, since you, you can look at paintings from different years of his life, right? You can see how over time his approach to this subject changed. And the thing that critics have noticed is that the later paintings that he painted of the peaceable kingdom, they say the animals look weary. That they go from kind of bright-eyed and excited to worn out and exhausted. It actually shows up in the paintings. And I, I raise this because I think this sounds really familiar for a lot of us, right? For, for anybody who longs for any division any violence, any oppression, for any of that to be made right, I think it's not uncommon for us to get worn out. To be tired of the way that things are as we keep longing for the way that we hope things might be one day. So maybe Hicks helps us find our way a little more into the story that Isaiah is trying to tell. Now between uh, this description of the character of that person that we saw early in Isaiah 11, the spirit of wisdom that will be on him. Between that description of character and this later picture, later in the passage, of the peaceable kingdom, of the healing and harmony that exists, between those two, the text describes something else. And I wanna call this out because I think it's an important piece in the puzzle for any of us who are choosing to see Advent as a season of preparation to welcome the life of God. I wanna call out this other thing that happens in Isaiah 11. This is between those two passages where we read, with a, just a word, he will end wickedness and abolish oppression. With nothing more than the breath of his mouth, he will destroy evil. He will clothe himself with righteousness and truth, and the impulse to right wrongs will be in his blood. With unwavering steps and integrity uncompromised, he will establish peace. Now, I observe this because I think a lot of us like the idea of welcoming God, and a lot of us like the idea of a peaceable world that we hope God will lead us toward, but it's easy to forget that between those two, there are probably moments of prophetic disruption, and the status quo will have to change for us to get from the way things are to the way things will be. Now, I know on one level that's so incredibly obvious it doesn't need talked about. In order for things to go from the way they are to the, thing, the way that they will be, something has to change. But I think many of us have never actually grappled with that. And for people who want to see Advent as a season to welcome the life of God, as we, as we welcome Christ at Christmas, for Advent to be a season like that, it's, it's not just for those of us to say, oh man, Jesus is really beautiful and magnetic and compelling and his character is so wonderful. It's not just for those of us who wish that things were better than they are right now. It's also a chance for all of us to ask ourselves, will we say yes to the disruptions that might need to happen in our life as we long for that peace, if we want things to move toward that peace? The impulse to right wrongs will be in his blood. With unwavering steps and integrity uncompromised, he will establish peace. He's gonna do some stuff, right? This is, this is not just the Jesus who feeds his friends. It's also the Jesus who walks into a temple where there are signs of systems of oppression that are happening there, and he flips over tables, and he fashions a whip out of cords. This is not just a pastoral Jesus. This is also prophetic Jesus. 
revolutionary Jesus who says, if I'm gonna help you make your way toward that peaceable kingdom, we're gonna have to fix some stuff. And fixing this stuff might be a bit disruptive. Some of us are longing for the life of God in our personal lives, and we want things to be better than they are and more healed than they are and more whole than they are. But perhaps the reason they haven't moved in that direction is not that God isn't with us or doesn't want that. It's that we have been saying no to the disruptions that will have to happen for us to get there, right? I think of a, a dear friend of mine who, uh, who just checked himself into a 30-day rehab, and I'm so proud of him right now. Because, I mean, 30 days at a rehab is awfully disruptive, right? You have a life that you were living and a job and all these things, and then you wake up one day and you say, I can't get to the peace that I want unless I'm willing to say yes to a disruption. And there he is, and I'm, I'm so proud of him. And I know that he'll have to work really hard, but I really believe that like, any hope that he has of that peace that he was hoping for is, is located inside the disruption that he is embracing right now. I think about um, marriages and families where the status quo is not working, but there are truths that are unspoken. There are agreements in silence that have been made. And everybody's wondering, husband, wife, kids, wondering why are things as fragile as they are? Why are they as um, tentative as they are? And it might be that the real peace, the, the, the robust kind of peace that this image describes is actually waiting for you when God begins to work through some hard truths, some difficult conversations, where the status quo gets disrupted a little bit. This continues to play out, right? You can keep expanding this into our neighborhoods, to our politics, into our world at large. And I think a lot of us have a, a bit of a reckoning to face, to recognize that, that we would prefer Jesus the peacekeeper than Jesus the peacemaker. And that keeping the peace is not bringing peace at all, Sometimes making peace calls us to confront and move into some version of conflict or difficulty. Like something has to change. We don't go from the way things are to the way they will be without something changing. And change means that whatever we're attached to in the current status quo, we're going to have to let go of. And we might have to say yes in this Advent season, not just to like Christmas sentimentality and not just to the manger scene. We might be invited to say yes to him who, who comes to disrupt some things, to make some things right. I also think sometimes about um, the way that our church is grappling with and learning to talk about some of the things that are broken in our world. Uh, usually, fairly reliably, when we talk about racial justice from this stage, uh, there, there are some typical emails that come in. And I'm not upset about them. I think it's really helpful because we're learning together. We're working it out, right? But one of the concerns or questions that always gets raised is, man, it seems like we're really divided around race. So why would we talk about that here? Because we're just bringing the division into the church. I, and I actually get why it feels that way. Like, I, I understand that sentiment or experience, but I, I think the problem with it is, like, we don't get from the way things are to the way they will be by pretending when we get together in our little Jesus circle that everything's fine. We get from the way things are to the way they will be by embracing the disruptions that need to happen so that we can move forward into the kingdom that God actually wants. Right? Okay. So... So Advent season is about welcoming God and preparing to welcome God, to say yes to the life of Christ coming into our lives and into the world. And I'm just trying to let Isaiah speak to us about what that entails. And I think one of the things that it entails is for us to say yes to a disruption. 
Is there a disruption that you've um, been avoiding? Maybe you know it's right there, it's like on the periphery, and you don't want to turn to it or say yes to it. Maybe this is the season to say, like, bring it on. Because the way things are is not the way they should be. So bring it on. The, the way things are is not the way they should be, and we won't get there uh, until we let the Jesus who comes come not just as our friend and our buddy, but the one who has it in his blood to make things right. Uh, so that's my meditation for the day. I, I want to turn us toward these candles um, that we light this Advent season. And before we light the second week's candle together, uh, just want to carve out a little bit of space for a meditation or a prayer or a reflection, however you want to think of that. Uh, so if you'd like to, I'm, I'm just going to lead us with a couple of prompts uh, into uh, some of these um, big ideas from Isaiah and the way that Isaiah might be teaching us how to anticipate and welcome the life of God in our midst. Uh, if it helps you, you might want to close your eyes, or if it helps you to put your feet flat on the floor, that, that might be a way of being present in body and spirit. And, uh, and then I'll, I'll offer a brief prayer, and then I'll lead us into some reflective questions. Loving God, we pray that you would guide our thoughts, that we'd be open to your presence as we reflect, so that we can be Advent people who welcome the coming of God. Let's begin by asking ourselves, is there anything about the way that Isaiah describes this character? Is there anything about the Jesus that you have met in the Gospels or in the life of the church or in the world at large? Is there anything about that Jesus that compels you? And would it be a, a beautiful and liberating thing to simply give your heart permission to feel the, the draw that it feels as you see the Jesus who seemed to have a capacity to look at every single person with an estimation of their belovedness and their value. As you encounter the Jesus who fed his friends and who spoke with truth and clarity, as you encounter the Jesus who willingly gave his life and love, does your heart want to wake up to that and move toward that? When the prophet speaks of a world where those most vulnerable are vulnerable no more, where they can be in the presence of the threat and no longer be threatened, when wars and divisions 
are all laid to rest and the entire beloved community of planet Earth finds itself together in peace. When you read that, when you hear that, does it stir a longing in you that you have not given yourself permission to feel for a very long time? Perhaps because the way things are um, hurts a bit too much, it's easier to forget about these promises, but what does it do to you today to hear Isaiah who says, the wolf will lay down with the lamb. The children will not have to fear any threat. That bodies and lives and stories will all be made safe in that world that God wants to bring about. What's that do for you today? When you read about him who has it in his blood to make things right, who with unwavering integrity will act in the world, is it not just the tenderness or the kindness that you trust, but the strength and the power to move into the world and make something right where it is wrong? Do you sense that that's a trustworthy power? And is it possible that there are disruptions that we have avoided or been afraid of? in our personal lives, our families, or our world, that because we have been afraid of these disruptions, we are still here weary and longing for the way that things will be. And perhaps to greet the God who comes this Christmas is to say yes to the God who will set things right, but who will do so in a manner that may require us to let go of the things that we are attached to. Is it possible that some of us have asked Jesus to keep the peace rather than make the peace? If you're able, will you stand to your feet? And we'll put a prayer on the screen here. And this prayer, by the way, it's, it's a prayer that many Christians are praying today uh, around the world, but together we'll make it our prayer as we light our Advent candle for the week. Laboring God, with axe and winnowing fork, you clear a holy space where hurt and destruction have no place and a little child holds sway.
clear our lives of hatred and despair, sow seeds of joy and peace, that shoots of hope may spring forth and we may live in harmony with one another. We light this candle as a sign of the coming light of Christ. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. this Advent season, may we welcome the good news that the life of God has come into the world. May we see in the very character of Jesus the character of God, and may it comfort us on days when things feel dark and we are not at our best. May we long for the peaceable kingdom where those most vulnerable will never have to worry anymore and all will be safe. And may we say yes to whatever disruption might have to happen. May we welcome the Jesus who doesn't keep the peace, but who makes peace. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.